The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. Please pray with me. Great God, I want to acknowledge that my task here is simply to plant or perhaps water, and it's you who provides the growth. We are your sheep. We come to you as hungry lambs, eager to hear from you the words of eternal life. Would you help them to come forth clearly? Would you put a guard on my mouth? Would you help them to have effect? May they not go forth paralyzed like in Habakkuk's day, but may they have an effect and run and bring much fruit. Thank you for your powerful word. We humble ourselves under it right now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're beginning a series today entitled God's Goodness in Chaos. And as we read the first opening of Habakkuk, it is easy to see that these are weighty words. So my question for you is this. These were written for his time, but what is the chaos in your life right now? Where are you feeling weight? Where are you sensing struggle? What are the things that are hard for you nationwide, nationally, in your area, in your family, in your workplace? Where are the weights in your life right now? What are you seeking to call God's attention to and saying, based on you being sovereign and over all things, this doesn't make sense. To what things are you crying out to the Lord, help? To what things are you seeking direction to navigate? Because it's just, it's confusing. And you don't know which direction to go. See, the beauty of this book and the reason that this is God's goodness in chaos to us is not just that that's the theme of the book, but that's what the effect of this book can be because it's God's word for us. Habakkuk is a little further along in the journey. He's already walked the road. And this is God's distillation of the insights and words that he wants for us. So our task today is to understand first, what did it mean for him? And then what does it mean for us? So really quickly, here's where we're headed. We're going to look at the historical background that this fits into so we can do that rightly. Then we will look at his first complaint in 2 through 4, followed by the Lord's gentle answer and stunning answer, followed by Habakkuk's second dialogue slash complaint with the Lord, and end in 2 verse 1 with a pause. Now, we will not answer all the questions that this book raises, and we certainly won't give you all the help that you need to navigate the chaos in our world. But, and this is a little nod to the children and younger people and those of us that are younger at heart, throughout this book, there is language of eyes and vision and seeing and beholding. So if you're a young person, you can If your parents give you permission, underline those or just make notes of them or tally them up. But what God wants to do in this book is to rivet our eyes on him, 
on his truth, on his word. And that's what we need most. Jesus, you alone. So let's begin, but let me make a quick note. What's so special about this book is that it's not like other prophets. A word for these people, a word for those people, a word for these people, but rather a word between the Lord and his prophet, a Lord and his nation, and we get to look in at it. We get to read it written down as well as the answers that God gives him. So we are blessed to do just that. So the historical day that Habakkuk lived in You need to know that there's no designation in this book that says it was at this day or during this king's reign or at this time. But as we look at the clues, as scholars put the pieces together, they believe that it fell in a three-year period. And remember, they count down to Jesus and then up from him. About 608 to 605 BC in this three-year period of time. So what was going on during that time? Well, I'll back up just a little bit. Habakkuk lived amongst the people, a a nation of Israel that had been divided many years ago. During the reign of their fourth king, Judah, where Habakkuk lives, was hived off and, and everybody else departed. And that group of people followed the ruler in the line of David and the rest moved in a different direction. They set up syncretistic worship and their journey was down, 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 down. They kept rebelling, kept rebelling until the words of Deuteronomy 28 came true for them and the Lord raised up the nation of Assyria to defeat them, carry them into exile and repopulate them. So these were very challenging days back then. They were a warning to this tribe of Judah who had more of a roller coaster history. Sometimes they were up, sometimes they were down depending on their ruler. They saw this happen. They even saw Assyria on their doorsteps and the Lord intervened. In Habakkuk's day, it's very probable that he either knew personally or knew of the days of Manasseh, a few kings before this was written. This is what it has to say about the downward slamming of the roller coaster during Manasseh's reign. Manasseh did what was evil in the sight of the Lord according to the despicable practices of the nation, nations who the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. He even burned one of his sons on an altar. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. And yet, an eight-year-old king, Josiah, came to the throne, and there was revival in the land, and hopes were stirred, the hopes of the faithful. And much good happened. And yet, probably when this book was written, there were two kings who were evil and quickly led the nation back to a very dark place, so dark that we read about it right here. So let's look at those days. The book opens the oracle of Habakkuk, the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. Little clue, saw. All we know, other than he's going to continue this theme of seeing, and it's a unique way of saying that he received this word from the Lord through his eyes, is that he is an authoritative prophet of the Lord. We don't hear about his relationships, like he was the father, the son of, so on and so forth. We just get this, and then we move right into the word, and I think that's what the author wants to do, so that's what we're going to do. Habakkuk's first complaint. 1 verse 2, please follow along with me. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear? In the Hebrew, it's front-ended with how long. 
So really it could be translated, how long, O Lord? And notice that each of these are pairs that fit together. I cry for help, you do not hear. I cry to you violence, and you will not save. There are people who are oppressing those weaker than them, and you are not saving. Then he asks some why questions. Why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you look idly at me? What You look idly at wrong. Why is this before my face? And it's like you're glazed over. It's like you're driving through Nebraska looking at cornfields. You are not looking at this. Lord God, I want to bring your attention to this. Why do you idly look at wrong? And then he says what he sees. Look very carefully at, with me at verse 3. Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. Four descriptors. Do you not see those in our day? Destruction, violence, strife, and contention. These are very applicable words for us. Maybe not exactly in the way that we'd think, but they are. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. Your word is falling on hard hearts, God. It's going forth as a paralyzed man, and that means it doesn't go forth. It doesn't accomplish what it should. God, why? For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. It's like they're ganging up on the righteous. This is not good. Lord, I'm crying out to you about these things. How does this apply to us? I think we could easily look at Twitter. We could easily look at the news. We could easily look at maybe conversations that were like, whoa, backing up from that one around us. But really, this word is for the church. Why do I say that? Because this was written to Judah. Remember, they were meant to be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. Who's the church? Review back to 1 Peter. A holy nation. We are the priests. We've been adopted in as Gentiles to this wonderful mission of the Lord, given a specific place to display the Lord God. And this church, this people of God, this covenant people of God is not doing that. So we need to first begin by asking ourselves, where is the church, our church, the wider church, not doing that? We need to ask ourselves several questions. Well, how might that apply to us? Are we taking the advantage of the weak in any way? Let me just give you one small example. Consider the statistics on pornography between the world and those in the church. If you want an example of something that is giving destruction, where the weak are being oppressed by the strong, that's one example. Or is the law going forth paralyzed among his church? Are we hard-hearted? Why did James say receive the word with meekness to the church? Of course they received the word with meekness because they're the church. No, they needed to be told that. Are we hard-hearted? Is it going in one ear and not the other and not affecting our lives? Are we looking at ourselves in the mirror and then walking away and doing nothing about it? Church, is this true of you? Is our life displaying God's word or is it twisted by our actions? Is strife and contention arising among us 
Not so much to say how it might be out there, but is it rising among us? The first thing that we should do is look carefully, is lay our heart before the Lord and repent. And then we should also examine our prayer lives. If you looked at a transcript of your prayer journal or life, as I've looked at mine and been convicted by this, am I crying out to the Lord about the things around me? Am I making time or am I just too weary about the challenges to try to translate those challenges into prayer to the Lord? May it be said of us that we were the people that cried out to the Lord for a very long time. How long, O oh Lord? When? When, Lord? When? Well, the scripture moves into a new section and we're very helped by what the ESV does for us here. It adds some quotation marks and puts this little title above there that says the Lord's answer. They didn't have that in the Hebrew. Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans. We need to pause and look at that for just a second. And the first thing we need to see is something that's only there in the original language. That was not just written to Habakkuk. There's four plurals, at least four evidences of plural in this verse. Look is a plural command. Wonder is a plural command. For I am doing a work in your days, that's to a plural people, that y'all, if they were southern, would not believe if told. Why is that significant? How many of us in these weighty days feel alone? How many of us in these weighty days feel like, am I the only one who's seeing this? Am I crazy? Well, take heart, church. You're not. You're not the only one bringing these things before the Lord. May he help you find others, perhaps, who are, so you can bring it to the Lord together. But even more, you are never alone. I am with you always, Jesus Christ says, to the end of the age. And we have a great high priest who is seated and who is interceding for us. Take heart, you are not alone. You're not alone. But we also need to wrestle with the command here. It says, look and wonder. We're supposed to look at this and be taken aback. And we'll look at it just a second and do just that. But you need to know, this is not just saying, Something bad is coming for you. This is saying, I am raising them up. Just like my word was paralyzed, I am causing this nation to stand. This nation that came out of nowhere, if you were looking at the history books, one commentator said, they became the world rulers over Babylonia. This was New Babylon, Neo-Babylon. The world rulers over Assyria, Syria, Palestine, and Egypt, when 20 years previously, they were hardly known to exist. You talk about the Lord raising them up. Here's a historical example of the sovereignty of our God. And we should be astounded that God would raise up this nation. Just look at what it says about them in verse 6. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, this nation that's going to be like the cup of Numbers 28 in the hand of their God, Showing the judgment of an unfaithful bride who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They're hasty. They're not going to give thought. They're not going to be gentle. 
They're just going to make fast decisions and leave the results as they lie. They're dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Where Judah's justice goes forth perverted, they are a law unto themselves. And, O Judah, be warned. It is not a pretty thing. What they call good, you would not, but that's their law. And then there's language of vision or language of poetic expression so that pictures are stirred up in our minds. Pay careful attention to verse 8. What comes to your mind? The horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press on proudly. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. Habakkuk had said, How long, O Lord? And the scary, astounding answer he receives is it's coming swift. They come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. Again, Habakkuk cried out, violence! And this is their mission statement. At kings they scoff, at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Israel's history was that sometimes by bribery or by the Lord's kindness in just different ways, they trusted in other nations. They were rescued by other nations. They banded together with other nations. No such story here. Other nations would be mowed down as they're coming for you. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on, guilty men whose own might is their God. Notice, as they're doing it to others, they're not going to just camp out in that other nation and just, well, let's pause or let's, let's spend our time here. No, they're just going to sweep by and keep coming. They're going to dominate, rule the world. What are we supposed to do with this? Yikes. Our good God is raising up and using this people, empowering this people as his tool? What are we supposed to do with that? Well, this is a very good analogy of the problem of evil, which we'll try to wrestle with a little bit in this series, where we see ugliness in our faces, and we're trying to figure out, God, you are good and sovereign, and how do I hold all these things together? We won't answer all your questions. We certainly won't today. But wrestle with that. More will be coming in these sermons. Find other people to wrestle with about those things. But I think there's also something that we need to wonder about. How serious is sin? God, would you really go to those extremes because of our rebellion? Yes. And for those of us on this side of the cross, it can help us see how serious it was that Jesus took the wrath of God on the cross. Sin is serious. Sin is serious. Do you see it? Or are you like me? Well, that's paid for. Praise the Lord, it's paid for. Yes, praise the Lord, it's paid for. And it's serious. Run from it. Don't play with it. Be God's holy people by his amazing empowering. So we get to see how Habakkuk wrestles and wonders and churns on these things, how he seeks to find stability 
Perhaps my favorite verse of this section is verse 12. So here's the analogy that I would give for it. Habakkuk is placed in a large ocean-going sailboat. And the storm is coming. He sees it on the horizon. What's going to keep me from capsizing? A massive ballast. We don't see it above the surface, but it's this massive, almost like root, but it's not. This very heavy thing that keeps him from capsizing. What is Habakkuk's ballast? That is what we need today. When we see the chaos around us, what is his ballast? This verse is rich. It begins with this. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? You need to know that's not a, I'm doubting this God. This is a rhetorical question. It's saying, of course you are. And the people said, amen. And I'm not asking you to say amen, but that's what he's doing. Are you not from everlasting? That's an Old Testament tag to say, think about the story of our great God. Look at what he's done throughout history. Look at what he's done in the wilderness. Look what he did with Joseph. Look at the story of our great God. And we as the people on this side of the cross can say, look at what he did in our history. He came to earth. He lived a perfect life. He was tempted in every way, yet without sin. He suffered unjustly. He bore our penalty. Look at the story of our great God and consider who he is. O Lord, my God, my Holy One, he personalizes these things. The first phrase is fairly rare. The second phrase is extremely rare. O Lord, my God, it shows up many times in the Psalms where the psalmist is seeking to cling to his closeness to the Lord and yet wrestle with Things, troubles, hardships, things that he's seeing. Yahweh, my God. And then, I love this. This is the only place in the Old Testament, so good thing we're reading this. My Holy One. I think he loves the attribute of the holiness of God and says, you are my Holy One. What would you say about your God? Who is he to you? I love that the Lord is my shepherd. There are words for that in there. And, and if holiness, his holiness is saturating you and you, that theme just jumps off the page to you, you can come to these words and call the Lord my holy one in the scripturally saturated truth. Oh Lord, my God. But let me just pause and say there are some among us or there's some that watching or some in the other room to whom those things are not true. You are not a part of the story of our God. You cannot say that he is my covenant God. Let me just tell you, on the night that he was betrayed, Jesus said, this is the new covenant in my blood. The covenant where I live the perfect life. The covenant where I pay the sacrifice. Come, drink of my cup. See the seriousness of sin in this book and flee to the Savior. Today is the day of salvation. Day is the day of salvation. He goes on and says, we shall not die. What does he mean by that? This is a group coming for violence. They're mowing down other people's. Other people are dying. What is he saying here? What he's saying is, we will not utterly be cut off. We will not be utterly forsaken. Just like it was said by Paul in Romans 8.31, if God is for us, who can be against us? He's not saying nobody's going to be against us. Welcome to the happy club. Nobody's going to be against you if you're with Jesus. That's not what he's saying. 
He's saying no one can utterly be against us. No one can utterly take us out of his hand. We shall not die. We shall not be cut off because you, God, have made covenant promises. A prophet like Moses, one that will arise in the house of David to be the king who reigns forever. Jesus is coming, and we know he has come, and we know he's coming again. The first place he finds ballast is to fix his faith on the Lord's proven character. I encourage you to do that. I call you to do that. Fix your mind on the Lord's proven character, his story, his revealed nature in the scriptures. But also, what happens next in this very interesting dual line of poetry is we see Habakkuk's wrestling with and seeking to find a way to navigate through his world through the word of God in the midst of his chaotic circumstances. Look at these two lines with me. O Lord, you have ordained them as judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. There's much here. I encourage you to study it on your own. Uh, but he's talking about the sovereignty of God and using a nation as judgment. Where did he get that? I mentioned Deuteronomy 28 earlier to you. After about 15 verses of all the blessings that God wants to lavish on his people in the midst of a call to choose life and not death, God says, many judgments will come upon you if you persist in rebelling against me. In Deuteronomy 28, verse 49, he says, The Lord will bring a nation against you from far away. That already happened to Assyria, and that is what's being told will be happening here. From the ends of the earth, swooping down like an eagle. Have you heard about eagles so far in this book? A nation whose language you do not understand, a hard-faced nation, a hasty nation. Hard-faced meaning like hasty who shall not respect the old or show mercy to the young. He knew that the Lord would use other nations to judge his people if they persisted in their rebellion. But what is more, his use of the term the rock, certainly he's seeking refuge, but really I think he takes that from Deuteronomy 32. Deuteronomy 32, about five different times the Lord is called the rock, and it's wrestling in the midst of a, a, a situation of judgment and, and, and hard things to grapple with, and it opens in verse 4 of this song that Moses wrote to be sung so that it would be in the hearts and minds of this people, the rock. His works are perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. What scripture are you clinging to in these chaotic days? Where are you getting your ballast from God's word? How are you being reoriented by the scriptures to know how to move and live in hard times and in hard circumstances, just not outside there, but in your own lives? What are you clinging to in God's word? That's how he was orienting himself. And from that orientation, he seeks to wrestle. And before we look at his final wrestle, you need to know he has not been corrected. The Lord in gentleness has responded to him. He has not said, well, I need to offer pushback on that observation that you have about my people. No, he did not do that at all. 
He says, you see it rightly? You wonder if I see it rightly? Let me tell you how rightly I see it. It's serious. We can wrestle with our God about difficult things. We must. He goes on, and there's two basic questions that he has. One in verse 13, and then the rest of the chapter finishes his second question. So let's, let's look at those. You who have purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors? And I think here he means the transgressors, the Chaldeans, and remain silent while the wicked swallow up the man more righteous than he. What he's doing is he's saying, look at the scales of justice, Lord God. Who is heavier on the scales of injustice? Not us, it's them. And you're going to use them to judge us? I know that you are the God whose works are perfect and whose ways are just, but this doesn't make sense to me. Help me wrestle with this God. And what is more, in this extended imagery about fish, he asked the question about the inhumane treatment that this nation wreaks havoc on other nations with. Look at verse 14. You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. I'm not sure if that's positive or negative. But on the good side, they're like fish swimming in, in the tropical areas, and, and it's wonderful. And yet, he, the wicked, the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, bring all of them up with a hook. People are fish here. Understand the horror that he's feeling. He drags them out with his net. People, he's treating people inhumanely. They are. He gathers them in his dragnet so he rejoices and is glad. Again, vile religious practices. He's worshiping his net. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offering to his dragnet for by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? Are you, Lord God, going to allow this to persist? Are you going to allow them to keep this up? Verse 2 is the pause in this section. Pastor Brian Lichty, Lord willing, next week will open up the whole rest of this chapter to help us see how the Lord responds. But quickly look at chapter 2, verse 1. I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer and what, and what I will answer concerning my complaint. This is a man who has confidence to boldly approach the throne, to lay out his complaint, very strong language, before the Lord with what he's seeing and observing. And the Lord engages with him in those things. This is not like Job saying, I'm going to bring you into my courtroom, God. You will have to answer to me. Who ends up then covering his mouth? We don't see that in this book. We see a man wrestling with his faith so that we might wrestle with our faith. 
So what are we to do this morning with this weighty word in our weighty times? First, and I think most clearly, bring your wrestlings to the Lord. Bring your wrestlings to the Lord. Wrestle with Him. Secondly, cry out about the wrong around us, the things that are before your eyes. Cry out to the Lord. Seek His help. May we be a people for whom it could say they were ones who cried and could cry how long because they continued crying out to the Lord. Third, if you see sin in your life, bring it into the light. God gives grace to the humble. He opposes the proud. This is a proud people that kept resisting him and resisting him and resisting him. It's not just, I'll get to that later. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to bring it into the light and receive mercy. Right now, our Lord God, Jesus Christ, is humble and lowly, gentle, and welcoming people to come to him. He will return in judgment. And people will run from him and flee to the hills. Turn to Christ. Bring your sin to him. Seek mercy from him while it may be found. Finally, we need to seek God's help to keep a firm grip on his character found in his word. We must, we must look at his story. Read his scriptures. I was encouraged this week and leading up to the election as I'm reading through Joshua and seeing that our God is the king of all the earth. Find help in his word. Look at his character. Read his story. And... Seek his help to figure out where in the scriptures you can find help to navigate the struggles that you're facing in his revealed truth. That's what Habakkuk did. This is how we move through chaotic times. This is what the Lord has for us. It is good. Would you pray with me? Lord God, we come boldly before your throne. We as believers can do that because we have a faithful and merciful high priest. Father, would you be merciful to us in all of these ways? Where our heads are bowed down, would you help us to fix our eyes on you? In the struggles that we don't know how to navigate, would your word become clear? Would you speak in our ear, this is the way, walk in it, trust in me, hope in this, and trust yourself to me? Would your character be big and beautiful? Would you help us to defeat every lie that would keep us coming to you and holding on to our sin? You are so much better. Your mercy is great. You are plentiful, abundant in mercy, more than we can imagine. Help us to see that be true in our lives and all the places that we need it. We need you, Lord God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.